Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where our goal is to bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region. I'm Rexon Yu, Managing Partner at the Asia Group. And I'm Sharon Rian. Today, we're pleased to be joined by Ashley Tellis, one of the foremost experts and practitioners of grand strategy and U.S. foreign policy in the Indo-Pacific region. Ashley is the Tata Chair for Strategic Affairs and the Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's also Counselor at the National Bureau of Asian Research, where he directs the Strategic Asia Program. Ashley served on the National Security Council as Special Assistant to President George W. Bush and Senior Director for Strategic Planning in Southwest Asia. He was the top negotiator of the pivotal 2005 U.S.-India Civil Nuclear Agreement, a landmark agreement that arguably has contributed more to the transformation of U.S.-India relations than any other one development. And lastly, I'm delighted that these days Ashley spends a bit of time with us as a senior advisor at the Asia Group. Ashley, it's really great having you on. Thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. It's such a pleasure, Sherry. I'm happy to be here with both you and Rexon. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Let me start on a positive note because we have had infections now starting to fall across India. Things seem to be becoming a little bit better for the country. Uh, give us some of your insights into what's been happening in the country in the past few months, because, of course, nobody will be able to forget some of those grim scenes that we've seen out of the country, crematoriums being filled, pleas for help on social media. India has, of course, gone through an awful few months uh, because of the second wave of the pandemic. I think the Indian government was less well prepared than it should have been. And the reasons for that are now a matter of great debate within India itself. I don't need to wade into that debate, except that to say that the one good thing, if there's any good thing that one can think about when pandemics are concerned, is that these waves tend to level off. And in the last few days, we have begun to see a slow leveling off of the second wave. And that, of course, offers hope that uh, the curve will flatten, uh, that India's highly stressed medical system will be able to now respond to a smaller number of infections, or at least a reducing number of infections. And it gives India some breathing room to prepare for what could be a third wave. Now, with a bit of luck, we'll never get there, Mm. but no one can be sure. Uh, But I think the Indian government and the Indian people have really seen this as a very hard lesson. And I think Indian attitudes to managing the pandemic will change and have changed dramatically because of what happened in the last few weeks. It's really interesting that you talk about potential new waves coming because my family, uh, my friends are all in Bolivia and South America. And here in the U.S., we feel that it's finally the reopening, the things are now returning to back to normal. But it's really not the case with those other countries that don't have enough vaccinations. You were born in Mumbai. You have family and friends there. How are they feeling about this over a year-long sort of lockdown and pandemic restrictions? Well, it has been an awfully difficult time, uh, especially the second wave. I think the first wave 
you know, had, had a sobering effect, but it did not take a toll. That is, there were a large number of infections, but the fatalities were relatively low. And I think that may have bred a certain degree of complacency in the body politic at large. Whereas the second wave, the infection rates are much higher than they were in the first wave and the fatalities are much higher. And because it has been concentrated in the major metropolitan areas, you know, the visibility of the crisis has also been higher. But it has been really a series of one blow after another, you know, the last two years in India. And I have, you know, had the unfortunate consequence of losing friends in this second wave. Uh, many, many acquaintances of mine have either been infected or have actually, uh, you know, passed away. So this is something that has struck people. It has struck a nerve in people in a very visceral way. We just can hope that the worst is behind us. But, you know, you can never be as complacent as I think India became after it had passed the first wave. Ashley, can I ask, just on that note, I mean, the, I can hear the, the personal impact, the, the visceralness, as you said, in your voice. Your thoughts on societal impact, you know, as, as the country, people, families, friends emerge from the immediacy of the crisis, do you have any any initial instincts on the more lasting impact in India? I think there are going to be several consequences. The most immediate consequence is that it has taken a toll on India's economic growth. Now, for those of us who sort of have been following India closely, India's growth was already slowing before the pandemic. In fact, since 2017, there has been a depression in, in trend growth rates. And then, of course, you had the China-India crisis, which you know rattled uh, the Indian polity in a different way. And then it was succeeded, unfortunately, by this horrific pandemic, which because of the very nature of things, right, because it basically destroys social contact and meaningful social contact, it has taken an economic toll. So you already see now numbers, and I'm not sure about the confidence we have in these numbers because the data is still sort of a little sloshy. But the fact is, you're beginning to see numbers that are showing increases in India's poverty rates, mm -hmm. contraction of the Indian middle class. And of course, the toll that it has taken on economic growth is plain for all to see. Mm. Now, remember, India's economic miracle had two dramatic effects. It raised millions of Indians out of poverty, and the pandemic now threatens that plan. And two, it fostered India's deeper integration with the global economic mm -hmm. system. And the pandemic is also threatening that plan because it is now inducing a greater willingness to think about autarky to think about resilience in a way that requires you to sever links, you know, with the international system rather than deepening those. So there will be long-term, uh, there will be long-term consequences to what has happened in recent months. Actually, what was really interesting to see in India was that despite the fact that you've had this huge economic impact on the country, markets have been rallying. We're talking about record highs for the Nifty, which kind of begs the question, what sort of economic recovery, what sort of recovery will India see? Will it be uneven, uh, a really disproportionate wealth uh, going to parts of the economy and not to others? 
So this is a very interesting question. And I have actually been, you know, flabbergasted at the performance of the Indian stock market, given what is happening in the real economy, right? And there are only two explanations that to me make sense. One is that the markets are reflecting what is a hope for a rapid comeback. And there is a certain logic to that, right? Because if you can defeat the pandemic, say, through a widespread vaccination campaign, and you can go back to social interactions of the kind that stimulate manufacturing, that stimulate the service sector to regain growth, et cetera, et cetera, then economic growth will pick up very, very quickly. So in that sense, I think the markets are reflecting a bet on the future and the hope that the second wave has now, you know, sort of alerted the Indian government into redoubling efforts on vaccination. But there's a second fact that I think also contributes to the performance of markets. And that is, we are now in a flood where it comes to global liquidity, right? Because Mm -hmm. the federal government has been pumping money in the United States. Almost every major economy has been involved in very big programs of fiscal support and so on and so forth. And so the very fact that you have a tide of resources that are made available It's not surprising that there is an impact on equity markets. And so part of this is simply the financialization of the global system. And, you know, there will be corrections that come in at some point. But I think it really, at the end of the day, represents uh, the Indian public's willingness to, to bet on the equity market and in so doing actually bet on India's own recovery. And so the question that you had asked me earlier, which I unfortunately did not address then, is really the central question which is, can India vaccinate fast enough uh, so that it can reconstruct the social ties that make economic growth possible or a return to economic growth possible? And I think that is the single most important question that will occupy the prime minister and his team uh, between now and the end of the current calendar year. Ashley, can I ask, in this context, you know, people often say, you know, find the opportunity in crisis. And to your point about the economic wreckage that has been wrought in India, as we've seen in many other economies, including ours last year, what would you anticipate the strategy by the prime minister and his political and economic team as they think about fiscal policy going forward? You know, Are they going to adopt a strategy that has parallels to President Biden's in terms of massive investment in a number of areas, will we see the potential for further restructuring in certain industries that could open up greater foreign investment? How would you help us think about this, the economic outlook, if we take a a large presumption to your final point there, that India is successful in large measure in its vaccination strategy? So let me start with the key point that underlied uh, all your remarks, right? That in crises lie, hopefully, Mm. the promise of possibilities. Uh, I see this now emerging in different ways in it. First, I see this government making a big commitment uh, to public health in the months and years ahead. 
Now, remember, this is a very important moment because the one thing that distinguished the Chinese development experience from the Indian development experience historically was that China had front-loaded massive investments in mass literacy and public health uh, long before India did. India now has an opportunity to at least pay catch up on the public health front. So I see uh, this government uh, really making efforts to deal with the challenges of public health. I think the prime minister had begun this effort Mm -hmm. before the pandemic. I see those efforts only accelerating uh, in time to come because there are political consequences, you know, to having the pandemic in the form that it was manifested. Second, I think uh, the imperatives of Indian reform will only get more intense. That is, India will have to go back to looking at what is required to stimulate growth. And so I see, for example, the efforts at privatization, which this government had committed to actually growing in pace because the government is going to need revenues Mm. if they're going to have to spend more on public health. Revenues will have to be generated in part by stimulating growth, in part by getting rid of the deadwood in the public sector. And in part by making the Indian economy welcoming for foreign investment. That, I think, is going to be a critical component because unlike the United States, which has an infinite capacity to borrow globally with virtually no political consequences because the dollar is a reserve currency, India does not have that capacity. India cannot be perpetually overspending. Uh, because it does not have the luxury of the rupee being like the dollar. Mm. They have to do it within much greater bounded constraints. So even though public spending will have to increase, and Mm. I I don't see an alternative because uh, consumption will be constrained for some time to come because the pandemic has taken a toll on private savings. So consumption will be contained. What happens to exports will really depend on what's happening in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And if the rest of the world actually, you know, improves dramatically, then Indian exports will improve. Mm -hmm. So if you say consumption has constraints, exports potentially have constraints because of what happens outside, then the only thing you're really left with is government spending. Mm -hmm. But government spending, unlike that of the United States, cannot be infinite. So you have to rely on the market, both the domestic market and foreign market to provide resources for India's growth. And I think a smart Indian policymaker is going to look to what needs to be done in both those areas. Has there been enough political consequences for Prime Minister Modi uh, stemming from the past year, everything that's occurred, including the pandemic? Because we saw the state elections and losing of some key states like West Bengal and a couple of southern states. But at the same time, some analysts that I speak to are saying that because national elections are years away, there's still no immediate threat to the prime minister. Well, I I share that last uh, sentiment because for two reasons. One, state elections are often run on issues that are very different from national elections. And so one should extrapolate from state election performance very cautiously about what the impact is on uh, on the national outcome. And then second, because national elections are so far away, you know, the prime minister has time to make up. Three years, right? We are are looking at 2024, right? So he has time to do this. The third point I would make is that, you know, the prime minister still has a very impressive standing in India. 
And, you know, in some ways that is also mystifying because even when he has suffered reverses, mm-hmm. uh, it, those reverses have never sort of bounced onto him personally. So even though his personal popularity numbers have dropped somewhat, his approval ratings are still upwards of 60%, which for the kind of toll, you know, the pandemic has taken in the last few months is absolutely amazing. I mean, if a US president could suffer these kinds of reverses and still have a 60% approval, I mean, you know, he would be pure Teflon. Is that because of his strategy of sort of using some of those cultural wedge issues to build national support? I don't think so. I mean, the cultural wedge issues have been there for a long time and Modi has sometimes exploited them in unfortunate ways. But I think there is a genuine conviction in India that, you know, here is a a prime minister who is a celibate individual. You know, he has had a government that has had a remarkable record of being free from corruption. In the way that he relates to the Indian people, he always conveys his determination to put India's interests first. So everyone, I mean, people are willing to criticize him for policy failures, but that does not necessarily, you know, redound to reputational disadvantage because they still see him as someone willing to do or wanting to do what is best for India. Now, he also has very severe critics who, you know, have a different point of view. But if if his popularity ratings tell you anything, to my mind, it tells me that the Indian people are willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. And that for him is tremendous political leverage. And so much is going to depend on how he responds, you know, in the months and in the years ahead, because I am not convinced that the pandemic, the second spike of the pandemic is really sort of the fatal obituary uh, for Narendra Modi, at least not. Can I ask Ashley, just to to personalize it a little bit, we're talking about the prime minister, you've met him on a number of occasions, you've you've seen him up close and personal, you've seen him as a politician campaign. Give us a sense of what he's like behind closed doors. How does he interact? Like, what is he like as a leader perhaps when he's not in front of a camera, but he's, you know, with his supporters or, you know, making tough decisions? Well, I mean, the first thing that strikes you is that he is intensely nationalist. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I mean that in a positive sense, that whenever he talks about issues, what underlies every question and every remark is really a question of, is this going to be good for India? Now, you can debate whether it's the solution he settles on are the best solutions for India's, uh, for India's rise or for India's benefit. But I don't think anyone can have any doubts that he really is driven by the idea of making a difference to India's prospects. Mm-hmm. That nationalism really suffuses every conversation you know, that you can have. Uh, The second element that I find striking is that he's very intense. You know, he's a very genial person in private and is very warm and welcoming. But there is an intensity, uh, you know, at a psychological level in terms of a determination to get things done. Mm. And he's always looking for opportunity. I mean, in many ways, you know, people used to describe him before he became prime minister as a man in a hurry. And I never quite knew what that meant Mm -hmm. until I actually met him 
And I realized that, you know, everything he's doing is already one day too late, right? If he had his brothers, he would have been doing it a day earlier. So there is a commitment, uh, you know, to India, which is striking. I mean, I guess all prime ministers must have had it. It was certainly true for Manmohan Singh. But Manmohan Singh was a very different personality mm-hmm. and certainly didn't wear it on his sleeve in a way that, uh, in a way that Prime Minister Modi does. And I bet it's that intensity and that charisma that voters really pick up on, right? But let me turn to that nationalism that you mentioned. It's a double-edged sword, right? If you take a look at it from the other side of things, is that why we're also seeing more inwards uh, trade policies, for example? I mean, he touts, you know, free trade agreements on the global stage, but when it comes to actual free trade agreements, he's been tending to look more inwards in that sense and have more protectionist policies, more uh, tariffs also increased under his government. I think that is part of it, but I would point to two factors which have sort of interacted viciously. That is, you know, the interaction has not been good or productive. The first is that since coming into office, you know, the prime minister has pushed a variety of welfare policies that no one expected him to pursue. In fact, before coming into office, Narendra Modi was seen as the growth prime minister. Mm. Uh, Since coming into office, he's actually pioneered a new kind of welfareism, which involves giving everything from, you know, um, cooking gas cylinders to bank accounts to the largest number of people, right? At the end of the day, someone has to pay for this. So the welfareism has come at the cost to a national exchequer, which has not been funded. And unfortunately, I think this government has looked at tariffs as a revenue enhancing measure. So it's not always that the tariffs have been shaped by a desire to insulate India from the global economy. Rather, the tariffs have simply been seen as a cheap and easy way to replenish the coffers, uh, which have been drawn down because of public spending. However, there's a second dimension as well. And this is what I meant, you know, two factors sort of interacting uh, unproductively. The second factor is that there is a reimagining of self-reliance. And this reimagining of self-reliance has often taken the government in a direction which has collided with the impulse to integrate with the global economy, which was very visible earlier. And so there has been a renewed effort and import substitution there's been a renewed effort at making things in India. Now, if you talk to government uh, supporters, they'll say, oh, no, no, this is simply a matter of bringing India up to speed, sort of getting the fundamental rights so that it can engage more effectively abroad. But the problem with that argument, and I'm willing to take that argument at face value, but the one thing we learned from 60 years of India's socialist period was that the, the compromises you make in order to build up your internal strength, even if you intend to compete effectively down the line, you actually end up creating constituencies within the country that profit from isolation because that's where they make their money. And then they end up becoming veto groups in politics. Mm-hmm. You know, so even when you're ready to finally compete and integrate internationally, you're held back by those groups that you have spawned who actually find isolation to be perfectly fine. And so this is the challenge that I don't think this government has fully sort of grasped or got its hands around. 
And it's something they have to think about because India has had 60 years of this history and it hasn't served it well. Ashley, can I shift gears a little bit and focus in on several areas in foreign policy from India from as seen from New Delhi? And let's start with China and the India-China relationship. And maybe I'd set it up this way. You and I have talked about, we've seen the change here in Washington in terms of the perspective on China, you know, now largely viewed by, by most as strategic competitor, strategic rival, adversary in certain areas where, and there are discrete areas where we've got shared, shared interests where we will try to cooperate, like in climate. And we recognize that our economies are intertwined in a very deep way. How would you characterize the perspective of China from New Delhi? Is it more and more akin and aligned to what I described as the emerging view from Washington as in, in essence, strategic competition or adversary or rival? Is it more complex? Does India still see broader areas for cooperation? I'm interested in, in a little bit of compare and contrast and as we think about different perspectives between Washington and New Delhi? That's a very interesting question because I think the parallelisms are actually quite profound. That is in both New Delhi and in Washington, there is a clear conviction now that China is a strategic competitor. And it's a conviction that hasn't come about because of any one single thing, mm -hmm. but rather an accumulation of grievances that have slowly been gathering steam. In the case of India, obviously the straw that broke the camel's back were the aggression that took place on the Sino-Indian border, you know, in the last in the last many months, right? But it's important to recognize that that was the straw that broke the camel's mm -hmm. back. It's not what precipitated, you know, the jaundiced view that India now has about China. Ironically, the jaundiced view about China emerged at the time of the civil nuclear agreement. And the efforts that China made at that time to prevent the agreement from being fructified, uh, the opposition that China demonstrated uh, within the NSG. This uh, is the, the nuclear suppliers group. Suppliers group meeting where mm -hmm. the Chinese were really the last person or the last entity standing in the way of you know, getting India the waiver that the US was pushing. Then there were all sorts of grievances that had to do with BRI with had to do with Chinese support for Pakistan and so on and so forth. So there was a whole accumulating set of you know, issues. And in recent years, you know, the Chinese sort of approach of not allowing people from the disputed areas to apply for Chinese visas because the Chinese were treating them as de facto Chinese citizens, mm -hmm. even though they were in Indian controlled territory, which, you know, for a post-colonial territorially sensitive state is really an affront. So all these things sort of piled together. And then they culminated in the crisis. Now, India has now begun to look at China as an adversary, plain and simple. Mm -hmm. However, it also recognizes, just as the US has, that China is a major pole in the global economy. That China is the world's biggest manufacturing power, it's the world's biggest trading power. It's a country that no one can do without. And that's true both. Right. That recognition is true both in Washington and in Delhi. So the challenge that both the US and India have is how do you 
protect your interests in the context of competition while also bounding the competition sufficiently so as to allow you to enjoy those gains that come from cooperation. Now, unfortunately, there's no magic formula and there is no static solution because the boundaries of competition and cooperation will constantly sort of, you know, there's and flows. And it'll require constant management, right? You can't sort of let the political markets determine this by themselves. Their leadership is essential. Statesmanship is essential. So I think this is where India finds itself today. Mm. It sees China as a rival. It sees China as a challenger in many ways, but it also sees a need for a productive relationship with China because China is not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Least of all is geography, mm -hmm. you know, sort of ties India to the hip. Is there a sigh of relief right now in India, at least when it comes to the Biden administration's stance on China? Uh, I think yes and no. There is certainly a sense of relief that the Biden administration has continued with the policy of competition. Mm -hmm. They were afraid that uh, the new incoming administration would sort of, in the desire to walk away from Trump, walk away even from the elements mm -hmm. of competition. I think that is certainly a source of great consolation. But the uncertainty that they have is essentially an uncertainty of detail, which is how is the United States going to manage the competition cooperation spectrum where China is concerned? Because depending on the specifics in the context of that continuum, there could be some decisions that impact India adversely, and there could be other decisions that are more beneficial. Ashley, what's at the top of that list in terms of areas? So at the top of that list, I would say would be uh, support for India in a geopolitical sense that is looking uh, for evidence that the Biden administration will continue to support India's rise, that will give India preferential access to technology, mm -hmm. that will continue to promote India's membership in the institutions of global governance. I think these would be three big things for India as it looks at how the U.S. readjusts to China. What are some of the points that could become issues in this relationship? Well, I think the biggest challenges are going to be in the Indo-Pacific space. Mm -hmm. That is, I think India would want to see the U.S. continue to stay deeply involved in the Indo-Pacific, continue to invest in the Quad, continue to see India as an, a sort of backup source for manufacturing. When the U.S. thinks about resiliency, looks at India as an alternative source to China for purposes of resiliency. And if we falter on some of these issues, then I think, you know, the opportunities would be lost and then New Delhi would begin to be, mm. uh, we say, less excited uh, about what the partnership means. You mentioned the quad, the grouping of the U.S., India, Japan, and Australia. How does India feel about the security aspect of this association? I think it sees a need for the quad as a security institution, but it treats that more as a forum for consultation today rather than actual military activity. So, it's very important to recognize that India has not joined the Quad because it thinks that the Quad is a great institution for producing global public goods. They're happy that the Quad produces global public goods, but that is a mask 
that overlays what is a clear security calculation. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, they see China as the challenge. They see the three other members as being, you know, full partners in dealing with the Chinese challenge. And so they want to keep the Quad as a security institution. It's just that they are not ready yet to think of the Quad as a military alliance. So what do they want to do? They want to use the Quad for diplomatic consultation. They want to use the Quad as a socializing mechanism to sort of tutor other countries in Asia what the Chinese challenge entails. And they want to use the Quad for cooperative activities in third countries. And this becomes implicitly the challenge to China's BRI, mm -hmm. the digital road, and so on and so forth. So it is a multidimensional approach, but I would be very cautious about, you know, forgetting the security elements that have animated the formation of the Quad and that will continue to keep it in being. Ashley, we sort of touched on in the course of the last few exchanges, the bilateral relationship between the United States and India. And we've seen just a dramatic change that dates back, as I mentioned at the top, to 2005. And even before that, in the rise and growth of US-India bilateral relations. I'm curious if you were to firmly look ahead and had an opportunity to say, this is the initiative, this is the quote, moonshot we should be pursuing to accomplish in the next 15 years. What would that be? And maybe it's not one discrete thing, but I you know, push you to be as visionary and, and concrete as practical in giving us your thinking a bit longer term. So I would flag three areas that I think offer possibilities. One is, can the United States make a concerted effort to help India develop a domestic manufacturing base? Now, unlike the nuclear deal, which was a single point decision, right? The mm -hmm. president made the decision and we simply had to implement uh, Helping India build a manufacturing base is going to be complicated because private actors will make decisions that bear on that, and so on and so forth. But if we can, at the state level, find ways to encourage American industry, uh, find ways to encourage American business, uh, to set up shop in India, to grow roots in India, that would be hugely transformative. Because I see the economic arena as actually posing quite important challenges in US-India relations, and we can mm -hmm. talk about that separately. But you know, helping with manufacturing, as part of our global effort to create resilient supply chains and so on and so forth, that would be very big. The second would be uh, in the area of public health. And I don't mean that simply using India as you know, a center for producing vaccines for global distribution. That is obviously the need of the moment. But we were already moving before the pandemic to a situation where the Indian health care industry was increasingly becoming a source of supply for procedures, for drugs, for all kinds of services mm -hmm. that were available to the rest of the world. In fact, medical tourism became a very important uh, you know, part of India-Gulf relations because it has world-class hospitals, it has world-class doctors, uh, and so on and so forth. And so India was really looking for much deeper synergies in the health space. And as the United States, you know, moves towards a universal healthcare system, whatever form it mm -hmm. takes, you know, looking to India as a source of supply, both for products and services, 
I think offers a huge opportunity and the pandemic has only made that more real and it's something that we ought to explore. The third is in the defense space. Mm -hmm. I cannot imagine a US-India relationship thriving without a much more partnership on defense issues. And we have only, to my mind, you know, dipped our toes in the water here. Uh, there's a long way that we can go. We can actually reach the stage within the next 10 years, within the next 15 years, where we slowly come to rely on India being able to do militarily important things, particularly in the Indian Ocean space, that would relieve the U.S. military, the burdens of constantly operating in that area. So those are three areas where I think, you know, we have uh, huge opportunities going forward. Will India's relationship with Russia become an issue here, especially the Russia source military equipment that India uses? It all depends on, well, it depends on two things. It depends on how we approach the issue politically. And it depends on what the technical interfaces between various Russian imports and American imports under the Indian flag will be. So let me touch on the first to begin. Uh, India is not going to give up the relationship with Russia. And it's something that we need to appreciate here. This is a relationship that goes back in very important ways to 1954, when Russia was the first major power to come out swinging in support of Indian claims on Kashmir. The Indians have never forgotten that and never will. In 1971, that relationship received a new boost where Russia stood with India, in fact, sometimes against the United States in the crisis over Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. So there is a political relationship that India has with Russia that it will not sacrifice. And interestingly, as the relationship with China becomes more fraught, New Delhi values the relationship with Russia even more because it sees Moscow as a source of restraint on Beijing. Now, we may think of that as an odd sort of uh, perception because we think of Moscow and Beijing being sort of in lockstep. The Indians don't see that. They think the relationship between Moscow and Beijing has large elements of expediency, that the relationship between the two, again, has convergences with no congruences, and that the gaps between the two can actually be exploited if you can come up with an artful policy. So India is going to do that. So that's the political side of it. Now, to the degree that we keep emphasizing that India should reduce dependency on Russia, you know, not treat Russia as a source of military equipment, et cetera, I think it's only going to be counterproductive. We have to learn to be more Catholic with a small C about these things. Right? If they want a relationship with Russia, let them have it, as long as the relationship doesn't undermine fundamental American interests. Now, what is the second part of the problem? Second part of the problem is more technical. And that is, as the military environment shifts from combat between discrete systems to combat between integrated systems, that's when we're going to run into problems because then, you know, Russian equipment will have to be integrated with American equipment, will have to be integrated with Indian equipment, and God knows the equipment of, you know, whom else, right? And that's where we are going to run into problems because we're going to be more hesitant about having high-end American military equipment sort of seamlessly work with Russian equipment for genuine reasons. I mean, you know, we are afraid that technology secrets would be leaked, information could be compromised, and so on and so forth. Now, this is something that India will have to manage, and the U.S. and India will have to manage together. But I don't think even the threat posed by 
the changes in military technology are going to change India's view about the political necessity for a strong relationship with Russia. Ashley, in your list of um, three areas that should be arguably strategic priorities for the relationship going forward, the first one you mentioned was building India's you know domestic manufacturing base, and you alluded to sort of the economic slash trade relationship bilaterally as as having some challenges. And I want to I want to pick up in the in the time remaining in one area that's sort of in the news today, kind of front and center. And that's in the digital domain, where we've seen a real standoff between uh, a number of the largest um, American tech companies and the Modi government over policies that uh, New Delhi has sought to impose on uh, social media uh, and tech platforms. I'd love to hear your perspective on where this goes. Where is the off-ramp? And how do we think about actions uh, that we might anticipate by the Indian government, as well as by the the Biden administration in terms of responding to these really intractable, difficult areas where there are no off-the-shelf solutions that uh, we can draw from? This, uh, Rexon, is going to be an area of major challenge in the years ahead. And It is a challenge that derives fundamentally from the differences in the state of development between India and the United States. India is fundamentally still a relatively poor country. It is still a country that has genuine security problems inside its borders, in addition to all the security problems that it has outside its borders. And therefore, when it thinks about its relations with American companies, especially the companies operating in the data realm, it thinks of those relations through the prism of what a national security state thinks about those relationships. So it doesn't think of these relationships as, oh, these are purely commercial. You know, the American data companies are private actors. Uh, They have access to Indian society and they can go about their business, you know, without any impediments. Rather, they think about these companies as being purveyors of information, including by agents that do not wish the Indian state well. And therefore, the things that American companies prize, the ability to encrypt information, the ability to guarantee users that you know big brother is not watching or is not listening these are exactly the issues that threaten the indian state because the indian state says i need for the sake of my national security to have visibility sometimes into what people using your platforms are saying or what they plan to do and so on and so forth and so the indian approach at one level has been to try and force American companies to monitor traffic uh, in ways that would advance India's national security interests. And that, of course, sets the stage for a collision uh, between the Indian state and American uh, private companies. Then, of course, you have a second layer of the problem, and that's economic. E-commerce companies, for example, American e-commerce companies operating in India, are highly efficient. They distribute, you know, they really sort of enlarge the market in ways that were simply unthinkable in a brick and mortar economy, right? Now, the Indian government is looking at 
this state of affairs, and it says our brick and mortar companies run a real risk of being put out of business by far more mm-hmm. efficient e-commerce operators. These brick and mortar companies pay taxes to the Indian state on every transaction they conduct. But the transactions that e-commerce companies conduct are not susceptible to any tax burdens. And so the Indian state, partly because it wants to protect its brick and mortar companies, and partly because it wants to raise revenues and equalize you know, the, uh, the sort of tax field, is now looking actively at taxing e-commerce transactions, especially transactions that are conduct- conducted by American companies. And of course, they see this as simply leveling the playing field, whereas we see this as a form of market discrimination. And this is an argument that we are going to have. There's no way we're going to avoid this argument. And to my mind, the faster we engage this argument, the better we're going to be. I don't think this argument is going to be one on principle because there is enough equity on both sides of the argument. You can understand the predicament, right? So the real question is going to be how much of give and take can we negotiate to basically say, look, we know that you have right, but so do we. So can we craft a compromise that actually serves both our interests? And to my mind, my regret is that, you know, this administration has unfortunately moved a little too slowly on being able to uh, sort of muster the bureaucratic capacity to engage with India on these questions. Now, it's partly because, you know, they've come into office just a few months ago, et cetera, et cetera. But the train is not going to wait for us in India because things are already happening in India and I don't see us having the capacity to respond. And so the faster we can get our act together here, I think the better off we'll be. I guess what I would say, Ashley, is reflecting on our conversation, the sweep of areas of opportunity as well as areas of challenge, I think is a testament to the scope and depth and breadth of the U.S.-India relationship. And um, I don't think there's a bilateral relationship that the United States has where we don't have challenges. And I entirely agree with you that there is an urgency to sustain and expand momentum on the agenda, the bilateral agenda. And let's hope we we see more of that in the weeks and months to come. Thank you, Ashley, so much for joining us today. Terrific conversation. We are very grateful. Thank you very much, Rexon and Sherry. It was wonderful having this conversation with you. I look forward to more in times to come. It was really great. Thank you so much, Ashley. Thank you so much to our listeners as well. Please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also access a full video of our conversation at theasiagroup.com. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.